0: Hello and welcome to Taking Care of Business, I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the minds and brands of successful leaders and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. This show is about connecting and creating conversations that matter building your powers of influence, persuasion, and ultimately communication. We explore the latest evidence-based findings in neuromarketing, consumer behavior, business techniques, tips, trends, and tricks. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business healthy. To continue eavesdropping and to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and my website, Brandstorm. Dot com.au. So while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a corporate innovator. He works with Startup Accelerators, Children's Entrepreneurship, Oh, I'm dying to find out more about that, and Podcasting. Please welcome Steve Gleveski. Good to have you on the show. Now, you do lots of different things. Let's just start off with this corporate innovation that you do. What sort of work does that entail?
1: Yeah, so that entails the work that I do with um, Collective Campus. And basically, we essentially help large Fortune 500 organizations uh, update their uh, values, their systems, their processes in order to support the mindset and the behaviors that uh, are key to entrepreneurship. So moving quickly, taking risks, uh, which often doesn't come easy for big listed companies who have a lot to protect. Um, And it also helps to upskill their workforce on things like uh, design thinking, the lean startup, agile methodologies, as well as partner them with startups. So basically operate across capability building, culture change, and collaboration with startups.
0: Yeah, well, the Collective Campus was recognised in 2018 as one of Australia's fastest growing new companies by the Australian Financial Review and Corporate Innovation Startup Accelerator, uh, which you've got a base in Australia and Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, that you've been home to over 100 startups and you've raised yeah. more than 25 million US and you've worked with Village Roadshow and Microsoft. They're pretty impressive credentials, Steve. Uh, yeah,
1: look, I think I like to say that it's all cumulative, right? So the one thing is something, those credentials build up.
0: Yeah, I, I I love that attitude and I find that consistent with a lot in the startup world. It's been, oh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, what's next, what's next? And, mm-hmm. and you just sort of have that uh, continue. Were you born like that? Like, how did you get into this?
1: Uh, I think I always had a entrepreneurial itch or at least a, creative itch if you will i mean i can think back to being eight years old and my dad not buying me the magazines i wanted to 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 buy like basketball magazines so i'd just go off and draw my own magazines full full uh complete with little pull out posters if you will um so i guess there was a part of me that just never took no for an answer and when he came across a problem would always try and come up with a solution of some kind um so i guess i've uh, taken that uh, into adulthood if you will
0: yeah, and uh, obviously uh, you do like a little bit of variety in what you do because mm-hmm. you also host an iTunes chart-topping podcast mm-hmm. uh, that gets more than a hundred thousand listeners a month, and it's called Future Squared. And you've won a couple of podcasting awards. How did you start that?
1: Yeah, so Squared was just going to be a bit of a marketing uh, channel for us, but it became so much more. Uh, we published that onto Apple Podcasts. And before we knew it, we were on New and Noteworthy, and that got us into the Apple Podcasts chart. So I quickly took a screenshot of that um, and then used that to help us secure big names. Um, so some of my guests have included the likes of Kevin Kelly, who founded our Wide Magazine, uh, Robert Greene, uh, who wrote the 48 Laws of Power, and, um say, uh, Gretchen Rubin, who wrote The Four Tendencies, and even Adam Grant, um, who wrote the book Originals. So I've had numerous guests, but. It still is a marketing channel for us, but apart from that, it's access to amazing thinkers. It's relationship development. It's also personal brand building, and it's an opportunity for me to learn a hell of a lot about such a broad range of topics from everything, everything from neuroscience to entrepreneurship to technology, economics, politics, psychology, philosophy, you name it, and I find that when you read or learn across disparate areas, it just helps you connect a lot of dots um, and makes you it informs your decision making and your problem solving in a way that knowing a lot about a very narrow uh field of subjects um just wouldn't do.
0: Yeah, it's certainly good if you're a, a consultant, or certainly, or at the very least, makes you an interesting dinner party guest. Uh, but but I I hear what you're saying with this show. It's the same thing. I get to speak to people like yourself, and it's almost like you're going to university for the day. That brain p- picking is just wonderful. I, I, it mm. really is it, very stimulating. Yeah.
1: and it's very so immersive as well. Uh, mm. I think when it's a conversation with someone, uh, I find the neural uh, connections tend to be a little bit more stronger than they are if I was to just read it uh, in a book.
0: I agree, totally. And I do like the, uh, the the format of radio or podcasting, that audio format, because it really is the theatre of the mind. So you can really tap into that that creativity side mm. of things. Now, you yeah. also founded a Lemon Stand, which I love the brand name of, a children's entrepreneurship program. Uh, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, with the lemonade stand, basically what happened was, um, we, uh, one of my employees, um, more or less suggested, Hey, during December and January, business is really quiet with the corporates. They all go off on holiday and forget about working uh, for a little while and don't really pick up until February. But school kids are on break. And as we know, the world is fast changing. Um, kids need to learn to become more adaptable in order to succeed in the 21st century and stop learning in school while relevant may not help them with that. So how about, we take what we're teaching large organizations and startups around rapid experimentation, building prototypes, marketing, and so on, and teach kids. And we've had kids as young as seven come through the Lemonade Stand program, which has been rolled out to over 1,000 kids. So it's basically a two-day workshop where kids run through the whole gamut of uh, tell me about a problem you want to solve, uh, coming up with solutions to that problem, building a business model around that, building some prototypes, websites, landing pages, and things of that persuasion to test their ideas and then pitching their idea at the end of the two days to an audience. Um, and that's been so successful that we're now built that into an online version that we'll be launching in April um to basically scale that through schools and also individuals who want to buy uh, or purchase a uh, subscription to that. But that essentially, what what we really want to see kids learn to become is more adaptable, uh, more critical thinkers, because for so long things changed very slowly, but now we're finding that up to... of today's jobs are more likely than not to be automated in the next 10 to 15 years. So things that even white-collar jobs, blue-collar jobs, service sector jobs are under threat. Um, And the only antidote to uncertainty is to get really good at adaptability, um, which is what uh, Stephen Hawking said, you know, um, adaptability is essentially intelligence. So adapting to uncertain circumstances, uh, I think entrepreneurship is an awesome vehicle to help kids with that and also just to become more resilient um, with their mindset because they're going to learn to hear no um, as part of entrepreneurship, but no is really a lesson learned, and with each no you hear, you can make those changes that are required to get through yes.
0: Oh, that's so inspiring, really inspiring. Uh, have you noticed when you're dealing with the children, any gender preferences? Are so you finding that more of the, the boys are more attracted to the tech side and, and mm-hmm. compared to females? What's your view there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know there's been studies performed on, on gender predispositions towards certain types of work, um, and I think uh, the studies around psychology suggest that um, girls prefer work whereby they're dealing more with people, whereas boys prefer work where they're dealing more with things. Um, however, that's not true across across the board. Um, you're going to have the, a lot of overlap as well. But we do find that the girls in the in the Lemonade stand program come up with a lot more altruistic ideas um like solving big problems whether it's to do with the environment, whether it's to do with homelessness, uh, whether it's to do with the welfare of animals. Um and we find that the boys are often looking at things, um, like creating uh one one such example I can think of is a Netflix for video games. Uh video games are so expensive, how can we um bring down the price? Well why don't we just create a Netflix for video games where you pay ten dollars a month and we can play a lot of games. So Um, I think you see some of those sensibilities come out as kids at a a very young age.
0: Oh, that must be fascinating. (laughs) I'd I'd be totally obsessed with looking at that behaviour. But let's talk now about your new book. It's your first published book called Employee to Entrepreneur. What motivated you to write it?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the statistics today, over 50% of people are dissatisfied at work, and I myself spent about a decade in the corporate world uh, working for big brands like EY and Macquarie Bank and KPMG. And and whilst I learned a lot there during my first few years, I got to a point where I had, I suppose, what you would call, quote-unquote, the trappings of success. But deep down, I felt miserably comfortable, uh, whereby I didn't really see the value of what I was doing come the end of the day. I was quite unfulfilled, and I felt that I could give a hell of a lot more. And there's so many people in the same position, but they don't know what to do like right? what's step one and they're scared of falling into a lot of the common pitfalls because 96% of startups fail and usually it's because they um, jump to conclusions or they end up in paral- with paralysis analysis and a lot of that comes out of the behaviors we learn in the corporate world around research, analysis, planning, calling a meeting with a few people whenever a decision needs to get made just so we can spread that accountability and and ultimately it, you can get away with that in a, in a big corporate environment because if you've got a business model that makes money. And you're essentially playing defense. You're protecting that. But as an entrepreneur, particularly during the early stages, there's so much uncertainty. You haven't got a business model that makes money yet, and you're playing offense. So you need to move quickly. You need to take risks. You need to learn what works, what doesn't, and move forward. And you know, too much research analysis and planning can be the undoing of many, many an entrepreneur. So the book basically distills my seven years in the entrepreneurial space, be it all the work I've done, working with you know almost 100 startups uh, out of 50 large organizations, uh, read hundreds of books, you know, just had thousands of conversations, all that sort of stuff, This filled into 280 pages, and it basically covers everything from why you should get into entrepreneurship, whether entrepreneurship is right for you, um, how do you identify your purpose, what you should work on, uh, how do you experiment quickly, what are some awesome marketing and sales strategies you should use, as well as how to 10X your productivity, because it's easy to get busy being busy, but it's another thing to get busy being effective and still have time to spend with family and friends come the end of the day.
0: Yeah, so what sort of mindset or character attributes are fundamental to success for an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a few, but the, the biggest, the two biggest ones really, uh, and I'll quote Calvin former as president, he said that uh talents education and genius aren't enough. The world is full of educated derelicts. What he said um, mm. persistence alone trumps everything. Um So persisting in the face of setbacks after, well, setback after setback after setback and having a really positive relationship with adversity, I think that's going to get you further than anything else will. Um And that's why I think schools place a lot of emphasis on the technical ability and perhaps not enough on the emotional intelligence that really underpins success across a number of different fields, not just entrepreneurship. Um, so being comfortable with your ego being challenged, I think, is a big thing, which is why I like to put myself in the firing line sometimes in terms of my own ego being challenged. Um, just the other night, I got up on stage at a open mic stand-up comedy um, event in front of like 20 or 30 people, which is a small audience. And if I was to do a keynote on entrepreneurship, that would be nothing but they're expecting me to make them laugh. And that is a whole different ordeal and it can be quite uh, confronting. So I think if you've got a history of putting yourself in the firing line of having your ego challenged um, and you're comfortable with that, um, you're probably, you've got some of the prerequisites or one of the big prerequisites rather to having a shot at entrepreneurship being a potentially uh, rewarding career path for you.
0: Did you get a laugh?
1: I got one. Um, (laughs) However, having said that, about five of my jerks fell completely flat
0: (laughs) you actually need plants in the audience to laugh and then everyone will follow uh now (laughs) you you mentioned earlier about planning a lot of entrepreneurs spend too much time planning so they get that paralysis by analysis factor Mm -hmm. but how much planning should be done in your view
1: yeah yeah i mean it's a difficult question to answer without having the context of what are we actually planning for what are the variables we're looking at um
0: What's, what's the bare minimum so if, so if someone's wanting to start a business they 're wanting to become mm-hmm. an entrepreneur they 've either got a new business idea or they 're involved in a startup or some idea business idea what 's the bare minimum they should do from a the bare minimum
1: they should do is basically identify uh the problem, the solution, and the customer segment um, and you know they can spend time looking at Gartner and Forrester research reports or they can just find out what the assumptions underpinning this problem, this solution, and these customer segments are, and go out and test them as quickly as they can. So a really simple example of that would be, um, say hypothetically, it's 2008 and I've come up with the idea for Uber. Rather than building the platform, building a 100-page business plan, onboarding hundreds of drivers, what I'll do is test the biggest assumption, which is that people will actually trust a stranger enough to get into a vehicle with them. How could I test that? Well, I could go out on a Saturday night to a busy taxi queue where people are waiting for a, for a cab and just ask people whether or not they'd be willing to spend or to pay $20 to get a, a ride home with a stranger, providing that we showed them proof that this person was a criminal or something to that effect. Yeah. Would people say yes or no? And that's the fastest, quickest, cheapest way you can start to test those key assumptions that underpin your business model because you're going to have a lot of assumptions that underpin your idea but there's going to be maybe two or three make or break ones and if they turn out to be false then you can get everything else right but the business more likely than not is not going to succeed.
0: Steve when you are out at a bar or a barbecue or something and someone asks you what do you do how do you describe (sighs) yourself?
1: Uh, It's a a good question and it's it's a difficult one to answer particularly when I do podcasting and book writing and working with corporates and kids and all this sort of stuff and I used to say I am a corporate innovation consultant but I I like to read people's body language and that didn't get people excited So nowadays I open with I'm an author (laughs) and and, and that gets a conversation going and then as a byproduct of that conversation going, by, well, how did you get into that? And then I can start talking about the other work that I do. But if I open with I'm a consultant, um, that pretty much kills the conversation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I was, I was thinking you don't call yourself a serial entrepreneur.
1: No, uh, definitely not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a serial killer. I always laugh at that one. Steve Glavisky, employee to entrepreneur. Uh, a great read, How to Earn Your freedom and do work that matters. Uh, I assume you can buy that book anywhere books are sold?
1: Oh yeah, I mean you can buy it at all the big uh, bookstores like Dimex, you can find it online at Amazon, Booktopia, you name it, it's there. Just search for Employee to Entrepreneur in Google and it'll it'll pop up, it'll be the first thing.
0: Great, and I've just a quick last question. Your website, Employee to Entrepreneur, it's dot, is it I-
1: I-O. I-, 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 o-
0: I haven't seen that before, what's that stand yeah.
1: for? Uh, input, output.
0: Oh, okay. I wasn't oh, sure yeah. if it was 10 or <laughs> or what. I actually quite like the thought if it was 10. So people are now moving away from the dot-com into other dot-something yeah. else.
1: People are moving away. I think, I mean, a lot of that is because it's a bit of a land grab and most of the dot-coms are already taken. And if you want to secure a dot-com, you probably have to pay upwards of $5,000 for a you know a common word, uh, if not more. Um, whereas the .io, the .ccs, uh, the .tvs even are starting to um, make a bit of a run and and they're just a lot cheaper um, to get started with.
0: Yeah, well, uh, it's a way for you to walk the talk. I like it. Steve Glaveski, thank you so much for your valuable time.
1: Thank you so much, Jackie. It's been a pleasure.
0: I loved it. Uh, You're listening to Taking Care of Business as we pick the best brains in the business world. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest says, the average piece of business advice to an executive takes around eight hours of you and your team's time to prepare and 15 minutes to deliver. Those 15 minutes can't be wasted, so how can you ensure you cut through with your advice quickly and improve your chances of influencing their decision making? Our next guest is a specialist, How to Manage the Risk in Your Decision-Making. He's just released a new book titled Winning Conversations, How to Turn Red Tape into Blue Ribbon, and the inspiration of today's topic, Winning Conversations. Welcome, Brian Whitefield.
2: Thanks very much, Jackie. My pleasure to be here.
0: Good to have you here. Now, what is influence and persuasion, in a, and how do they differ? Like, what's the, Are they the same thing, or do they differ?
2: I'm sure there's a technical definition, but that they're, they're, they're different. But in my mind, they're the same. Persuasion, the art of persuasion, I think, is more the conversation where where influence can come from um, the things you do, uh, and uh, you know, third parties that you know, a, a good referral for us, for example is, is is good influence. But you're the one who ultimately has to persuade.
0: Yes, so when you're having winning conversations and turning red tape, which we all hate, and I love that into a blue ribbon, uh, much more positive, how do we increase our influence when we're having a conversation?
2: Well, the first thing is is trust. And and we talk about trust a lot these days, and and for good reason once you've had raw commissions in the financial sector Mm. and certainly heightens it in people's minds. But essentially, we all have barriers... Too poor advice. We're always worried about the two-toned shoe salesman. Mm. Um, even your 90-year-old mother, you know, who would do you no wrong, you've got a barrier up um, a, a potentially against her advice she might provide you around the internet, for example. Mm. So the idea of, of ultimate persuasion having a winning conversation is you have to uh, build and establish a level of trust so that they're willing to take a punt on your advice. And that's why I talk about persuasion or being a persuasive advisor before you become a trusted advisor. Right. Because until they've trusted your advice and learnt that your, your, your advice is, is solid and, is, and in fact is blue ribbon and not just a bunch more red tape, then they don't, they can't build that trust. Once they've got the trust, they'll be uh, knocking down the door to uh, get more of your advice.
0: Now, one of the areas you specialise in is risk management, and you were president of the and chairman of the board of the Risk Management Institu- Institute of Australasia uh, a few years back. And yep. how do you influence decision making? Like, what are the key elements to influencing a decision maker?
2: So, interestingly, and much to the chagrin of, of um, engineers like myself, I originally was a chemical engineer, is that logic isn't all that it's cut out to be. People make decisions primarily on emotions. So unless you can get them uh, in an emotional mindset to ex- to start absorbing and, and 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 taking on the logic, the logic won't work. Some people just do not want to hear. And in professions like risk compliance, safety, for example, they come with a lot of baggage. There's a lot of perceptions of of being the fund police, the the, the business prevention officers, um, wet blankets. Uh, And so the initial reaction from people is that you've come to um, create problems for me. And and so you you really, really do need to uh, break down those perceptions. And Connection is the way um, to do that in terms of uh, driving people's emotions. And the key one I use is storytelling. Um, storytelling builds connection, mm. um, drives emotion. And once you've got an emotional mindset, then you can come in with your logic.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, it's, it's brilliant advice and it's taking... It's taking a bit, we're a bit slow to pick that up, and all the evidence, all the neuroscience evidence, are pointing that way. It's, it's overwhelming that that's actually the way it is. That's actually, ironically, a fact that emotion emotion drives decision making. It's just taking a little bit slow for our corporate dinosaurs to pick up on that. But
2: particularly uh, logic based people, like yes, you know, a lot of logic based people in finance, in in risk, engineers, and we just can't understand Why, why, why did they get it? Why did they get it?
0: I their know, not right. and 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 they use the word emotion negatively. Oh, they're 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 too emotional, or they're getting emotional yeah. about the decision. You go, yep, absolutely. <laughs>
2: <laughs> absolutely, yeah. read it for what it is. Stand yeah. in their shoes, but you know, get inside their heads, yeah. and it's, then you'll be able to influence.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? This this barrier that we have that uh, most people have to it. Now, when you were president and chairman. Of the board of risk management institution of Australasia from us, I think I'm, if I've got my stats right, 2012
2: to yes. 2015.
0: That's right. Um, RMI will suffice. Uh, yeah. RMI, yeah, okay, that's good. Uh, and um, yeah, this, it's, a, it's certainly a mouthful. Uh, so we're you know we're three years down the track. Risk management has been uh, certainly a growth area. What's been the change in corporations or businesses? view or opinion on risk management in an organisation?
2: Unfortunately, I don't think it has been a significant shift since 2015. However, I think the opportunity is now. The, just watching what's come out of the Royal Commission, the finance sector, there's some stats out at the moment, or the stats I'm quoting at the moment. I think ANZ had something like $50, 63000000 million on FTE, FTE on 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 risk and compliance people. The Commonwealth Bank had over three thousand risk and compliance professionals uh, globally. Uh and they still ended up in a Royal Commission. Mm. So throwing money, throwing resources at something um that is actually not working, uh, I think people are gonna start are starting to realise that it's gotta be done differently. And what's generally happened is that uh, you know, regulators and others have pushed organisations into um, uh, thinking about risk and compliance more and people have treated it as a box-ticking exercise. And so the risk professions challenge, risk and compliance professions challenge, is to change the emotional mindset of people from this is a box-ticking exercise to this is something really valuable. It's actually going to provide me insight and allow me to make better decisions for starters and once i'm making better decisions aren't i going to have better outcomes of course i am Mm,
0: yeah it just makes sense it's the irony of this logical versus emotion anyway now in your book you talk about a pathfinder model can you tell us a little bit about that
2: sure so first of all why is it called the pathfinder model we we talked earlier about the uh, the barriers that people uh, put up to good advice well here's the problem what, there's about seven billion people on this planet? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? There's seven, about seven billion variations of the barriers. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. No, no two people have the same barriers, right? So how do you actually design your advice to get past these barriers? There's no one way suits all. So what I thought I'd do is come up with a model of a process, a pathfinder model, that if you follow it, it gives you the best chance that you've got to Design a, a process to navigate past those barriers. So it's got four uh, four steps to it. First of all, you need to stand in their shoes. You stand in their shoes so you understand, you get inside their heads, you understand where they're coming from. Once you've got past that, once you have a good, clear, clear understanding on that, you've got two main tools for working what's, on what's inside their head. One is painting them a picture and one is telling them a story. So painting a picture, a picture's worth a thousand words. Mm. If you don't paint a picture for them, they'll paint their own, and it might not look like yours. Yeah. And then tell them a story for uh, to connect to connect them with you. That the, the likability part, for example, uh, the respect or, or credibility part, and and connect them with what you want them to be, to be doing with your advice, you know. And or and the last part is to make them believe. <laughs> and how do you make people believe? Through credible conversations. Credible conversations coming to the conversation with credibility, delivering your paint and, and, and tell with credibility and, uh, and leaving them to make the ultimate decision because people don't like to be told, they like to make their own decision. So okay. there it is, stand, paint, tell, make.
0: Okay, I like it very much. Brian, what's your view of your 2019 and beyond in, uh, in the area of risk management?
2: things are going to happen getting inside on risk culture and things like that. But I think it's really about the risk profession stepping up and having winning conversations. That's what I really think it's about. And what will shift in the end is that we'll ultimately get more accountability for managing uncertainty in organisations. That's the language I used? Yes. Managing uncertainty. Mm. That's managing risk.
1: Yeah. But
2: people don't like the word risk, but they need to manage uncertainty because they're responsible for the outcomes. So why wouldn't you want to learn... To better manage uncertainty, um, but without the red tape that can be created by the, by people like the risk profession, compliance profession. So I think it's time for the risk profession to step up, cut the red tape, and become you know, start building into those winning conversations.
0: Yeah, look, that's I think that's a lovely way to finish off our. Winning conversation today, Brian Whitefield. I, I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, it's certainly conversations that matter, which I think are, are really important. And your Pathfinder model is, uh, is curious. And I think anyone curious in knowing how to turn red tape into blue ribbon should have a read of Brian's book. You can get this book everywhere you can buy books, I'm assuming.
2: Pretty
0: much, yep. bookstores, Amazon, my website, there you go. Excellent. Okay, and your website is au, and uh, people can also follow you on Twitter and, of course, on LinkedIn if they wanted to find welcome. out a bit more about you. Brian, Whitefield, thank you very much for your time today and I've really enjoyed our winning conversation and look forward to our next encounter. Thanks, Jackie. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a great friend of the program. I always like to check in with him every now and then to keep on top of all these trends and the fast-paced change in the business world. He's a social researcher and demographer and, as I said, great friend of the program. Hello, Mark McCrindle.
1: G'day, Jackie. Good to be with you.
0: Always good chatting with you, Mark. Now, what's some of the biggest trends in business at the moment with, with, uh, I suppose, there's four generations now. I was reading Mm. some research saying that are entering the marketplace. So certainly uh, diversity in age would be one of them. What else is there?
3: Well, exactly right. You know, more of those age groups are more generations than ever in the workforce and in our consumer or client base as well. So really understanding that the difference that exists there and the increasing age difference. The fact is people are working later in life, people are living longer, people are remaining active as consumers or in running their businesses. So we will continue to see in this period of a longevity boom, uh, a wider age range of customers. And what it means for Lifetime value of a customer or a client has never been greater. You know, if we can continue to meet their needs as they move through those different life stages, we really can... Engage people for the long term, which is uh, you know a very pleasing thing to be able to do.
0: It's a, it's a wonderful time for you in your career to see all these changes because there's been some seismic shifts in Australia's demographics. Particularly uh, this year, as Gen Y and beyond—that's Australians born since 1980—will become the largest population of the population. I couldn't believe that.
3: It's amazing and it was, uh, I can remember in the early 2000s when this term Generation Y was first being coined and used and people were saying, well... We've heard of baby boomers and Generation X, but who's Generation Y, and now they, along with the generation that comes afterwards, obviously Generation Z, uh, now comprise the majority of the Australian population. That is, that the generation born since 1980, or Australians born since 1980, uh, now are more than half of our national population. And those two generations I've mentioned, the Ys and the Zs, who are the oldest edge are in their 30s, but the youngest edge, you know, just heading into their 20s, they now comprise half of the workforce as well, more than half this year. So so the majority of the population, of the workers, of the wealth accumulators, and therefore of the, of the new purchasers are these uh, so-called millennial or, or, or new generations and all the more reason to understand them because they're big in number and they're big in economic power as well.
0: So what's the key to success in understanding these... Um, they're called millennials, aren't they, Mark? Are they grouped all together, the Ys and the Zs? Is that Yeah, right?
3: that's, the, that's the way it generally works. If people are talking millennial, they're talking about... Uh, what we would describe sociologically as the Gen Ys and the Gen Zs, but essentially those in their 20s or 30s. And and I guess what it does mean is that uh, we've got these generations that have been shaped in this digital era with technology, global in outlook, influenced through the social connection, not just what the experts tell them, visual in terms of how they consume content and make decisions. They're, they're uh, also um, you know, digital in terms of those tools. And so they've got access to more information. They're a few clicks away from any product or offering out there. And all of that has transformed what they look for in a service provider in a business. Um, and, and their timeframes are a lot shorter as well. So we do have to be more customer-centric and more adaptive to these trends if we're to really meet and, and maintain their needs into the future.
0: You know, your business, MacRindle Research, is uh, very well known for its visual and its data storytelling, and that's the bit I've always loved about the work you do, Mark. It's not just presenting numbers, yawn, don't understand it, but you're actually creating a story, so you're you're working with the brain, because our brain loves a story. We like storytelling. It makes us understand things, and you use that a lot. So with this big data, I think you did a TEDx talk not long ago, you talked about more or the number. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, well, we all have recognised in the last few years we've entered a world of big data and... And that's powerful. You know, the business insights that come from data is incredible if we can understand it, interpret it, and apply it. And that's where the visuals come in. We say that big data needs to be visual data if we're to really put it into practice. It was uh, 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 Tom Peters, the management expert, he used to say mm-hmm. what gets measured gets done. And so in business we've got our KPIs, no doubt. We've got the data that we track, sales, whatever it might be. But I would, I would add to the Peters saying there, and I'd, I'd add extra phrase in the middle, I'd say, what gets measured and effectively communicated gets done. And so the effective communication part is trying to help our team members or indeed the customers see the data by making it visual. You know, in the last few years, we've seen this, this term infographic, where data is presented in visual charts, where reports... Uh, have a lot more visual elements to them because we are time poor. We're not going to read through the big report, but if we can see it in the symbols or the pictures and clearly understand the message through that, it's going to stick in our brain better. It's going to be quicker to consume. It's going to be easier to share, particularly on a digital platform. And, And the more we share it, the more we understand it and we'll apply it. And so that is the power and the importance of visual, not just to make it look pretty, but strategically to make sure those communications are effective.
0: Hence the rise of the emoji.
3: <laughs> exactly right. Because <That's laughs> <right. will> <laughs> you know, we, we communicate, you know, uh, emotionally, not just rationally. And and the pictures, and the emojis, the, the the way we communicate in text language, it brings the heart and not just the head. And that's that's true in any communication.
0: Yes, well, uh, the visual side of our brain is uh, superiorly dominant. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's good to tap into that. Now, the other thing I noticed, uh, Mark, recently you were in China talking about trends in the Australian market. What were you chatting about?
3: Yeah, well, just uh, how yeah, really Australia is is part of of, of our region. Yeah, we look to the north now, not just to Europe in terms of where our connections comes from. Our census data, the, the latest Australian census showed us that now of Australians born overseas, and that's more than a quarter of us, more were born in Asia than in Europe. So we have shifted even our, our, our migration patterns to, to take into account our part of the world. And, uh, and so the, the, the demographic epicentre of our globe is just to our north in Asia. It's the emerging economic epicentre as well. And so we do a lot of analysis of Asia and get over there a fair bit uh, to communicate some of the insights and trends and really help them understand the Australian marketplace as well. And, and what I find over there, and what we found in this, this recent tour, is uh, very sophisticated and engaged business Community in China and emerging small business marketplace as well, um, global in outlook, and really looking to Australia uh, as a place of of investment and, and benefit. We are on their radar from an education perspective, uh, from a, a an export you know country perspective, and and obviously our our property and our um, cities uh, and infrastructure are, are key areas that China looks at and can can assist across Southeast Asia as well. So that was part of the the tour there and just sharing some of our analysis.
0: Well, talking about global education, I also noticed that you're just starting your PhD at Harvard Business School, of all schools. Uh, How come you chose Harvard and what are you doing your PhD in?
3: Well, it's it's a, a a doctorate in international leadership, and and you know as I was just communicating with uh, with those broader trends, you know, it has to be global leadership we bring to the fore now, not just a, a traditional perspective. We have to be able to have not just that IQ and not even just the EQ or the social intelligence, but the, the CQ, the cultural intelligence, you know, manage different generations of different cultures and backgrounds, and be adept as to uh, whether we're you know in a local position. Environment or an international meeting or, or managing you know, some offshore staff, so so that's all, all part of what's required these days, and uh, and that's what the uh, the doctorate involves. It's an international cohort of of students from Australia, from the US, some from Canada, and uh, uh, it's it's a, a three year program where well four years in, in the end by the time you you write up a thesis. So we'll um, we'll spend some time this year in the UK as well. at at Oxford and, uh, and so it just gives us this, this global perspective on, on what's happening in business in leadership and in, uh, in this fast-changing uh, megatrends-driven uh, business environment.
0: Yeah, well, that's really exciting, Mark, and uh, oh, congratulations. Thanks. I think it'll be great and, and it'll be great to actually get that insight globally into these megatrends. So let's talk a little bit about some global megatrends that we know now. What are some of the uh, insights you've got at the current time?
3: Well, a big one this year would have to be trust, and it's not just true in Australia, where we've had you know, a couple of royal commissions that have really focused in on trust and, and how well uh, some big players in various sectors are delivering. But it's it's we see it internationally with with brands uh, with whether it be you know, food brands that we consume and can we trust the safety of them to cars we drive and can we trust the reports written about the, the, the standards of these vehicles. Wherever we look to, whatever the sector here in Australia, you know, banking and finance, um, aged care and, uh, and, and religious institutions, whatever it may be, uh, Australians, are, and, and I think right around the world, people are looking to make decisions on trust. And it's always been important for a business, to have that trust reputation, but I think these days even more than ever because, as I said earlier, what influences us is what others are saying, and not just what the brand says about itself and what we find and what what our experience has been and the experience of others. And those organizations that can not only have trust and, and have a legacy of it, but can maintain that trust in terms of delivering delivering to customers what they say they will, in terms of living by the values that they espouse, and in terms of being those global citizens, uh, that's what really does uh, create a a premium of consumer engagement these days. And um, and so trust would have to be one of those key themes for the the year ahead. And the other one that we um, haven't touched on that we've been looking at is, is this this year of what we're calling a recessionette now, I don't think we're we're quite heading towards a recession and certainly technically speaking, you know, we've, we've had a dream run for a couple of decades without one, but as the property prices have dropped, Australians are getting a sense of feeling less wealthy, a sense that they're... House is not worth what it once was, a sense that uh, those mortgage repayments might tighten up. Certainly living costs have been going up and wages growth has been flat. And that is coming to a point this year where Australians are cutting back a little bit here and there on their spend, and that does have some flow-on impact. So not quite mini-recession, but certainly that feeling of a slow-growth environment and uh, and, and a few further to come across the Australian consumer landscape.
0: Mark McCrindle, it's always stimulating, a very reflective uh, a conversation with you, but I liked Mm. your point about in uh, the uh, addendum to uh, Tom Peters about things being effectively communicated. That's Mm. always Mm. the key, and I think that's uh, part of this discussion today. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you.
3: Well, I have two. Thanks so much, Jackie.
0: Thank you. We hope you're enjoying eavesdropping on our interesting conversation. We'll be right back after this short break. That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you missed a lot. The podcast will be on the website, artablepfm.com.au, and you can connect with me to continue the conversation, Jackie Mitchell, on social media or at au. Thank you today to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday at 11am. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business.